Genesis 22 is a well-known text. It contains one of the most well-known stories in all of the Old Testament. If there were a few that people know, things like David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den, Noah's ark, these things come to the fore, and this is often included alongside them. Abraham going to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. It's one of the most well-known stories because it's very dramatic and it pulls us in by engaging our emotions. It's easy to put yourself in Abraham's shoes and think, how would he have felt? Imagine God coming to you as he came to Abraham and saying, sacrifice your son your only son, whom you love. The story draws us in. It has a way of pulling us in to the events here. And it's written so realistically. And so compellingly, if you pay attention to the details. God calls to Abraham and Abraham says here I am and God doesn't just say take your son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering he says take your son your only son Isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering there's this intensification in the way that God presents this test to him. John Gill says that in some of the rabbinic literature, this is presented as an expanded dialogue between God and Abraham. And I think that this is not what actually happened, but it helps us understand what is happening here. It says, it's as if God says, take your son. And Abraham says, well, I have two. And he says, you're your only son. And Abraham says, well, they're both the only son of their mother. And then Abraham says, whom, or then God says, whom you love. And he says, well, I love them both. And then God says, Isaac. And Abraham's left without any excuses. You see here that there's this intensification. Take your son, your only son. Whom you love. Isaac. Yes, that one. Take him. And Abraham, in this passage, is not the man of weak faith or faltering faith that we have seen at times. Abraham, in this passage, is the man of strong faith. As he seems to waver. And his faith ebbs and flows. Sometimes exemplary for us. Sometimes not so much. Here it certainly is. Early in the morning, Abraham rises to do what God has said. But if you notice, it says he saddles his donkey, gets the young men who are going to go with him and his son Isaac, and then he chops the wood. Isn't this so realistic too? Abraham's mind is heavy. His heart is heavy. 
He's thinking about other things. He's preoccupied with the awful contemplation of what God has required him to do and he does things in an illogical order. He saddles the donkey and he gets everybody ready to go and then he says, let me chop the wood. Again, isn't this the way that it so often is when your heart is heavy? You forget things and you miss things and you leave things out. And they begin to go and there's no dialogue recorded for us until the third day. Three days traveling toward Mount Moriah. Abraham, presumably the only one in the group that knows what's about to happen. Three days, they're going. Then he lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Presumably there was some sign of God's presence there. Perhaps a smoking cloud as we read elsewhere in scripture or something like that. God has said he's going to show him which specific mountain. And then we read that he sees it from afar. And so it seems that God pointed out visually which mountain it is that Abraham and the boy are to go up. So Abraham says to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Here we see Abraham commanding his servants to stay lest they attempt to stay his hand when they get to the top of the mountain. Lest they think that he's become a delusional and deranged old man and try to stop him from doing what it is that he knows God has called him to do. He says, you stay here. I and the boy will go. But he says, we will come back again. Which hints at what Hebrews 11 tells us, that he was trusting that God was able and in fact going to raise Isaac from the dead. It seems that that was his conclusion. Isaac was the son through whom God had promised, or through whom God was going to bring to fulfillment the things that he had promised. And so Abraham assumes or presumes here that Isaac will be raised from the dead. So Abraham takes the wood and lays it on Isaac, his son. And yet he takes in his hand the fire and the knife. One commentator pointed out that though he knows that at the top of the mountain he needs to kill Isaac in obedience to God's command, you see here still the paternal care that he's not going to give his young son those things which are dangerous to him the fire and the knife. Still you see here the father showing care by holding on to the things that could endanger his son, even though he knows that at the top of the mountain he's going to use those very things to make a burnt sacrifice of his son. Things come to attention. Abraham builds the altar, lays the wood in order, binds his son, reaches out his hand and takes the knife to slaughter his son. And just then the angel calls to him, Abraham, Abraham. Stops him just in the nick of time. And then Abraham turns around and behold, the Hebrew word is something like, and what should he see? But a ram caught in the thicket. The way that this story plays out 
further engages us and pulls us in, just even in the way that it's written. So this is a well-known text and it pulls us in. It's interesting to us. But what does it mean? What are we to make of it? This severe test, which John Curran says, is so severe for Abraham because he is not only commanded to sacrifice the son for whom he had waited some 25 years, but it's so severe for Abraham also because Isaac's death would appear to invalidate all of God's promises to him. John Gill adds to our understanding of the severity of this test. This was a dreadful work Abraham was called to. It must be exceedingly trying to him as a man, and much more as a parent and as a professor of the true religion to commit such an action. For by this order, he was to cut the throat of his son, then to rip him up and cut him in quarters, then to lay every piece upon the wood, and then burn all to ashes. And this he was to do as a religious action with deliberation, seriousness, and devotion. This is what a burnt offering is. So what are we to make of this story? What does it mean? We'll examine it tonight under the following three headings. First, three difficulties raised by the text, then two willing parties, then one overarching idea. So three difficulties raised by the text. First, this text appears... This text makes God appear to be less than omniscient. In verse 1, it says that God tests Abraham. Why does God test him? He's not sure what Abraham will do. He's not sure what will happen. He's not sure what Abraham knows or what Abraham's response will be. God needs to acquire knowledge. Then when Abraham passes the test, so to speak... God says in verse 12, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. God did not know that before the test. God learned something. In Isaiah 45, verses 9 and 10, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. We know from this verse and others, and from the essential nature of God, that He is not like us in terms of gaining new knowledge and responding accordingly. Rather, He is the one from whom and through whom are all things. God not only knows the end from the beginning, but God has declared the end from the beginning. I thank God for that. Each morning I wake up and I may check the newspaper or the news feed on my computer or my phone to find out what's going on, but God doesn't. God doesn't even wake up, let alone check the news. He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And God not only knows what's happening today, doesn't have to read the news, He decreed what is happening today. 
We are on a spinning globe, but it's not spinning out of control. God has declared the end from the beginning. This helps us understand what the text cannot mean when God appears to be less than omniscient and to learn. But the question remains then, what does the text mean? John Calvin's helpful to us here. He says, how can anything become known to God to whom all things have always been present? Truly, by condescending to the manner of man. God here says what He has proved by experiment is now made known to Himself. He speaks thus with us, not according to His own infinite wisdom, but according to our infirmity. In other words, because it's hard for us to grasp the kind of God who doesn't learn anything. God speaks to us in this way to help us understand that He is a God who puts His people through hard times as if to find out what is in their heart. As if to learn what kind of person they are. So that we have some way of conceiving of God's dealings with us. Our goal then in trials should be to give expression to the godliness we profess to possess. As if to show God where our hearts are at. Augustine's manner of understanding Genesis 22.12 is... I have caused you to know that you fear God. And that's not what the text actually says, but theologically it's probably fair to say that that's kind of what's going on. Is that God's test hasn't given God any new information, but it's revealed to Abraham and it's revealed to us something of Abraham's faith. God does not technically learn from our response to trials, but we do. And the people observing us do learn what is in our hearts. So the first difficulty presented by the text is that God appears to be less than omniscient. And we understand now that that's just a manner of speaking. The second difficulty raised by the text is that the test itself appears to be immoral. God seems to be commanding something that is against His law. In fact, later on in the Scriptures, God says concerning child sacrifice, they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Jeremiah 19 and verse 5. But this second difficulty is only apparent because we now know from our vantage point that God did not intend to allow Abraham to follow through with this. And so with this in mind, God can say without guile in Jeremiah that he did not it did not even come into his mind to have his people offer their sons as burnt offerings even though he commanded that very thing to Abraham. God knew that he never intended to let Abraham follow through with it. To Abraham, however, to Abraham this would have posed a very serious dilemma because he couldn't just flip to the end of the chapter and see what happened. And the only way that Abraham could resolve it would have been to obey God anyway. God spoke. What is Abraham to do? Disobey? Argue with God? If God speaks, we must obey. We don't know exactly how God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. 
But Abraham knew that it was God speaking to him. And therefore, he must obey in spite of his difficulty in understanding. Likewise, we must obey the imperatives in Scripture that we don't fully understand. We might, like Abraham, not know why God has commanded or prohibited certain things. But if we read them in the Bible, we may be certain, like Abraham was, that God has said them. And if we are certain that God has spoken, then we must, like Abraham, obey as he did, even without understanding. The third difficulty raised by this text is the relationship between works and blessing, exemplified by verses 16 to 18. God says, because you have done this, because you have done this, and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is only a difficulty because of Genesis 12.3 and 15.5. In Genesis 12.3, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. No conditions there. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5. God brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. No conditions there. But it seems here in this section that Abraham has fulfilled a condition whereby now God is going to bless him. So this is another dilemma Another difficulty raised by this text, but I'm going to defer the resolution of this difficulty to a later point in the sermon. For now, it will suffice just to introduce the difficulty. So those are three difficulties raised by the text. Let's look now at two willing parties. We see in this passage Abraham's anguished willingness to sacrifice his son. Of course, Abraham didn't want to. He didn't even want to drive Ishmael out into the desert, let alone kill Ishmael. And here we're dealing not with Ishmael, but with Isaac, the one whom God said will be the heir. We can presume that Abraham didn't want to do this. We see a symptom of his distraught mind and doing things in an illogical order, saddling up the donkey, getting everybody ready, and then realizing, oh, I've got to chop the wood. We see his paternal care in carrying the fire and the knife. We see that Abraham's not acting like a man that's eager and intent to kill his son, but as a man who is reluctantly going to do it, and yet willingly going to do it because God has commanded him. So I say his anguished willingness. But we also see Isaac's anguished willingness to be sacrificed. We read three times in this passage that they went together. Verse 6, so they went, both of them together. Verse 8, so they went, both of them together. And then in verse 19, after the ordeal, so Abraham returned to his young man, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. 
This is a hint of the willingness of Isaac to be sacrificed. But the real tell is in the mechanics of what must have happened up on top of Mount Moriah. The Jewish tradition has Isaac at age 37 here. I'm not convinced that Isaac was 37. But he wasn't three the way that he was in chapter 21. Evidently, he's at least old enough to carry the wood. Kent Hughes says it like this. He was old enough to carry the wood, but young enough to ask a childlike question. My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? We don't know exactly how old Isaac was, but we don't read anything about a struggle. We don't read anything about strained, a strained relationship between Abraham and Isaac later on. It seems most likely in just this matter-of-fact way that the Scripture portrays it, along with the repetition of together, that what happened on top of Mount Moriah was that Abraham most likely explained to his son what was about to happen. Explained to him God's command. Explained to him as best as he could his understanding and his intentions. Certainly this would be what we would expect of a loving father. Certainly this is what we would expect of one who carried the fire and the knife up to the top of the mountain so as not to hurt his son. Certainly we would expect some kind of explanation about what was happening here. And it seems that Isaac acquiesced and agreed to be bound. And so we have a father in anguished willingness to sacrifice his son. And we have a son in anguished willingness to be sacrificed. Is this a foreshadowing of the cross? This is what many theologians have done with this story throughout church history. Did you know that the location of Mount Moriah is Jerusalem? 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. He began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. We remember what Abraham called the place. The Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Is it a coincidence that there is this mountain which comes to be Jerusalem where a father in anguished willingness sacrifices his son? Where a son in anguished willingness permits himself to be sacrificed. Another reason that many theologians throughout church history have 
sad that this story foreshadows the cross is that this is one of two biblical occasions involving a father sacrificing his son within the context of true religion. Of course, we read about lots of child sacrifices to Baal and Molech and whoever else throughout Scripture, but in the true religion, there's only two instances. This one and Mount Calvary. That's it. There's only two where a father sacrifices his son. Another reason is John's mention of Jesus carrying his own cross. All the other three mention the help. Uh, Pardon me, all the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mention the help that Simon of Cyrene provided. But in John chapter 19 and verse 17, we read that Jesus went out bearing his own cross. We might not make much of this, except that we read elsewhere in John tiny little details meant to evoke imagery of Old Testament events elsewhere in his account of the crucifixion. For example, John chapter 19 and verse 29 where John says that a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Well, what does it matter, John, that it was on a hyssop branch? Isn't that just like saying he drank it from a plastic cup or from a metal cup? Isn't it very much incidental? John mentions the hyssop branch because of Exodus chapter 12 and verse 22 where we read this take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin the Israelites on the first Passover were instructed to apply the blood to the doorposts of their house with a hyssop branch John is just giving us a little signal that Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood needs to be applied to us if the angel of death is to pass over. John loves working in these little details. So in John chapter 19 and verse 17, when he tells us that Jesus went out bearing his own cross, is he calling to mind this story where Isaac carries the wood upon which he is to be sacrificed? And then, the last detail of similarity that many theologians have drawn on is what I said at the beginning. It seems that both parties here in Genesis chapter 22 were willing. Abraham, willing, though in anguish. And Isaac, presumably willing, though in anguish. And this is what we see happened at the cross. John chapter 3 and verse 16 that well-known verse, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The cross was not Jesus' idea to appease an angry father who didn't want to forgive. The sacrifice of Christ Jesus was the Father's 
plan. The Father was willing that the Son should be sacrificed for the salvation of sinners. And yet, the cross was not the Father's idea, though the Son was unwilling. Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. We see at the cross a willing Father and a willing Son. We see on the Via Dolorosa the Son carrying the wood upon which He is to be sacrificed. We see that there are only two occasions in the biblical record where in the true worship of the true God there is an instance of a father sacrificing a son. And we see that both happen at Jerusalem. Is this story here foreshadowing the cross where the father gives the son that he loves as a sacrifice and the son in willing submission to the father goes is this story meant to tell us of that great story where Jesus comes to take upon himself the sins of the world where he is where he becomes that lamb slain for sinners bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sin after living a life that is spotless which the spotlessness of the lambs in the Old Testament foreshadowed and prefigured is this story teaching us about a sinless man who died as a substitute for sinners a transaction between a father and a son on top of a mountain at Jerusalem is this story foreshadowing that though it would be tempting for us to make that the main idea here in Genesis chapter 22 it's possible for all the reasons that I mentioned that that is something of what's going on here but that's actually not the way that the New Testament writers use this story There's one overarching idea taught by it. And that is not that this story foreshadows the cross. Though that may be secondarily true. There is one overarching idea. And it is this. As Victor Hamilton says in the New International Commentary, the New Testament writers appropriate the story of the offering of Isaac primarily to make a point about Abraham. His faith, His works, His loving obedience. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. Say this. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The author of Hebrews doesn't draw on this story as a picture of the cross. The author of Hebrews draws on this story actually as a picture of faith. Of acting in obedience to God's commands. Trusting in God's provision. Trusting in, here, the hope of the resurrection. Being willing to give up what is dearest to us in the short term in order that we might receive what God has promised in the long term. James chapter 2 makes the same point. These are the only instances where this story is mentioned in the New Testament. And James chapter 2 makes the same point. Beginning at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again here, when James draws on this story, he's not drawing on this story as a picture of the cross, but he's drawing on this story as a picture of genuine faith. Same as the author of Hebrews does. And so though it's tempting to make the main overarching idea of Genesis chapter 22 a type and a shadow of the cross, and I think, I think that that is going on secondarily, I think what this story is here primarily to tell us because of the New Testament witness is what real, genuine, saving faith looks like. Real faith doesn't stop short of offering up to God anything and everything. It's not a stretch to say by way of application, what is your Isaac that you are withholding from God? Real, genuine faith demands, as I keep alluding to because it's so, so poignant, what that last verse of when I survey the wondrous cross says, my soul, my life, my all. God demands your whole life. When we read, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We're not just talking about intellectual assent that there was a man named Jesus who died on the cross. We're talking about a wholehearted resting of our souls in that person, Jesus Christ. A letting go of the hope that anything else and anyone else can save and that only He can We're not talking about putting a little bit of our investment in Jesus and keeping a little bit of our investment elsewhere, maintaining a diversified portfolio. We're talking about liquidating all of our other assets in order that we might buy more stock in Jesus. 
This is what we're talking about. Selling everything that you have in order to buy that treasure in the field. That's what real faith looks like. By faith, as Hebrews 11 tells us, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. By faith, when you are tested, you need to offer up everything. These people in Hebrews 11 are held up to us as examples. Be like them, Hebrews 11 is telling us. Be like them and lay hold of God's promises. Follow in the footsteps of their faith. Trust God's promises as they did. This is what the Christian life looks like. This is what the author of Hebrews is doing for his audience. He's telling them, be people of faith. Lay hold of God's promises. Be like these people who have gone before. Throw off, he goes on to say in the beginning of chapter 12, throw off every weight, the sin which clings so closely, and surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who have testified that God's promises are true. The jury is in, so to speak. The witnesses have been called to the stand. They have testified and the verdict is in. God's promises are true. Run the race of faith like that. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. By faith, we need to be ready to do likewise. To offer up to God our soul, our life, our all, whatever is next dearest to us. James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. I can imagine James speaking in a bit of a sarcastic tone in verse 24 when he says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. With a little, maybe a little smirk on his face or something. To let us know that he's saying, in a manner of speaking, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Because James knows full well. James knows full well that our works cannot pass muster with God. He's already told us earlier on in his epistle that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. James is not so naive to think that our works are actually good enough for a holy God. And so he's telling us to try to bring our works as merit before God. And so he can't be telling us that a person is justified by works in that sense. But what James is talking about is what real justifying faith looks like. And he's describing that in contrast to people who say that they have faith that saves 
even though they don't have works. So maybe the person in your family or your neighborhood who says, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I remember years ago I prayed the sinner's prayer. And you say, yeah, but you're not living like a Christian. And they say, yeah, but you're justified by faith alone. James is responding to that kind of situation. And he's saying, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he goes and talks about Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. In other words, faith, real, genuine, justifying faith comes to fruition or manifests itself in works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, we see in Genesis chapter 22 what we would expect to see, having read earlier that Abraham believed God and that it was counted to him as righteousness. And so you see that a person is justified in that sense by works and not by faith alone. Martin Luther said, we are justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. And this is what James is trying to teach us in chapter 2. And so here we revisit the third difficulty raised by the text that I mentioned earlier, which is that in Genesis chapter 22, the fulfillment of these promises seems to be conditional. God says, Because you have done this, now I'm going to fulfill these promises. Whereas in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, they seemed unconditional. And so which was it in that case? And as Abraham's faith and works are held up as a paradigm for our faith and works, more, more importantly for us, what is it with us? Are God's promises to us conditional or unconditional? Well, they're unconditional in one sense, which is merit. When we come to talk about merit, God's promises are unconditional. There's no possible way that we can merit the fulfillment of God's promises to us. That's not going to happen. Because even as James tells us, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So if you want to talk about fulfilling conditions to earn, to merit the fulfillment of God's promises to us, forget about it. God's promises are unconditional in that sense. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ and in His merit alone. And it's on the merit of Christ alone that God's promises come to us. But what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. Shall we, having prayed the sinner's prayer, Now stop trusting and stop believing and stop obeying? By no means. Will you go to heaven 
if you prayed the sinner's prayer one time and then just walk away from God and live in disobedience and reject His Word and stop exercising faith in God? No. So in that sense, conditional. And I think that this is what James is trying to draw out for us in chapter 2 as he alludes to this story. That there, there are works which are in a sense necessary for salvation. The path along which we travel towards heaven is a path of ongoing trust in Christ Jesus and obedience to Him. And that's the path that Abraham walked. That's the path that Hebrews 11 calls us to walk. It's the path that Martin Luther described when he said, the faith that justifies is never alone. We can never earn heaven. We trust in Christ and in His righteousness alone and not our own merit. But we won't get to heaven without this ongoing obedience, this ongoing faith in Christ Jesus. That's what real faith looks like. Faith is active along with your works and is completed by your works the Apostle James tells us. You see, in that sense, you're justified by works and not by faith alone. James and Paul are not at odds. We need to have both of these things real clear in our mind. You can't earn grace, otherwise it's not grace. This is the logic of Romans 4. And yet at the same time, if, if you have real faith, it's going to work. And so we're justified by faith alone, but that doesn't mean a profession of faith in Christ or a prayer at some point in time in isolation from a life of obedience. What real repentance looks like, what real conversion looks like, what real genuine faith looks like in practice is a life of obedience to God. And if you don't have that obedience, you don't have faith, which means that you don't have justification. So as diagnostic, our obedience is diagnostic. This is what James is telling us in chapter 2. So Christian... Or shall I say, professing Christian. You're professing faith in Christ. You profess to be trusting in Him for salvation. You profess to be justified by faith alone. You profess to be trusting in Christ's merit and in Christ's merit alone. Good. That's right. Do you, does your life exhibit the obedience that we would expect to see from somebody who is justified by faith alone? Does your life look like Abraham's life, who by faith offered up Isaac? Does your faith 
looked like Abraham's faith, which was active alongside his works and was completed by his works. Does your faith look like that? Is there evidence that you are genuinely a believer? That you are genuinely justified? If not, maybe you need to hear Hebrews 11. Maybe you need to examine Abraham's life and the lives of all the others that Hebrews 11 talks about. And see, does my life look like that? Maybe you need to go back and look carefully at James chapter 2. And see, what does saving faith actually look like? Maybe you need to go back to square one. Maybe you're resting on the fact that you had some emotional experience at one time. You prayed the sinner's prayer at one time. And ever since, you've thought you're a Christian, when in reality, you're not. And maybe you need to go back then to that transaction between an anguished but willing father and an anguished but willing son. And I'm not talking about Abraham and Isaac. I'm talking about God the Father and God the Son. Maybe you need to go back to that sacrifice that happened at Mount Moriah, present-day Jerusalem. And I'm not talking about Abraham and Isaac. I'm talking about God the Father and God the Son. And maybe you need to see the Father sacrifice the Son. Again, I'm not talking about Abraham and Isaac. Maybe you need to go back to Calvary and see God the Father pouring His wrath upon God the Son. Though God the Son didn't deserve it. Though He lived a life of perfect righteousness. Maybe you need to go back and see that happening. And be honest with yourself and say, I have never really left my sin to take hold of that Savior. But I've got to do it now. And that means repenting of my sin. That means turning away from my sin. The Bible tells me I can't have that Savior and my sin too. If I, if I want to have hands ready to take hold of Him, they got to let go of my sin. That's what real faith looks like. It's for me to take hold of that Savior. To let go of my sin. By faith, to work at repentance. By faith, to work at obedience. Not trusting that this obedience is going to save you. Is going to merit salvation in God's eyes. Not trusting that the sincerity or the thoroughness of your faith itself is going to merit salvation in God's eyes. But simply recognizing that though Christ's merit is sufficient to save you. God has said in His Word that the means by which He will apply to you Christ's merit is your faith. And if you don't exercise faith in that Savior, you're going to hell. And real faith is working faith. R.C. Sproul made two mathematical equations that help explain this idea. Simply, 
And if you're like me, you might be suspicious that mathematical equations will make things clearer. But I think they do. He says some people wrongly think that faith plus works equals justification. That's not what the Bible teaches. It doesn't teach that faith plus works equals justification. That's not even what James is saying. James is kind of being provocative in saying that you're justified by works and not by faith alone. When you look at the logic of what he's saying underneath it, he's not teaching you that you need faith in Christ plus a certain amount of good works to merit your salvation, your justification. That's not what he's saying. Rather, what Paul, what James, what the whole Bible is teaching us is this. Faith equals works plus justification. In other words, it's not if you have faith and works, you got justification. It's if you got faith, you got works and justification. Real, genuine faith works. Real, justifying faith works. As Martin Luther said, we are justified by faith alone. It's Christ's merit, not ours. Not the merit of our faith, not the merit of our repentance that justifies us before God. It's the merit of Christ. But if, if you have real, justifying, genuine faith, you will also have works. And this is what the New Testament does with Genesis chapter 22. In Hebrews chapter 11, it reinforces the idea that we should be like Abraham who offered up his son Isaac. And in James chapter 2, it reinforces the idea that real, genuine, real justifying faith is like Abraham's faith that was active along with his works and was completed by his works. So again, as Luther said, thank God we are justified by faith alone. There is a Savior for sinners like us whose works could never be good enough for God, whose faith could never be good enough for God, whose repentance could never be good enough for God. Thank God we are justified by faith alone. But understand, diagnostically, if you want to know whether you're a Christian or not, the faith that saves, as Luther said, is never alone. 